0: Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of John. And we are going to start today, we finished up Proverbs last week. We're going to start today uh, a verse-by-verse study of what is actually, I think, one of my favorite books in the Bible. And I have a number of them. And uh, of course, like everything, you know, when you're going through something in your life or a period of time in your life different things become more important to you, but at the end of the day, it's all important, but you know what I'm saying. And, uh, you know, you've heard me say many times before that the breakdown of the Old Testament and the New Testament is key to understanding what God is doing. And in the Old Testament, and I've told you this before, but this fits into where we're going today... Uh, you have the book of Genesis, which is your first book in the Bible, which is the greatest definitive book in the Old Testament. The book of Genesis is placed as the beginning of your Bible uh, for for many reasons, but it is the book of the beginnings. But it's also a book of the beginnings of everything that God is going to do throughout the rest of the book. And then you have uh, four historical books after that, that really, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that really then uh, begin to show you uh, what God is doing. And the reason for that is after everything is defined in Genesis, God now takes uh, them and develops them into a nation through a 40-year journey. And then beyond that, you find the five key areas that God is doing with the nation of Israel to bring them as his people to bring the message of God to the world, but it all gets defined in Genesis. It's Genesis that brings us through the early aspect and then brings us to Abraham. Abraham then brings us to Isaac. Isaac then brings us to Jacob. God changes his name to Israel. And then from Jacob comes 12 boys who become the 12 tribes, and you know the rest of the story. They all go down into Egypt, and, um, and then they come out as a nation. And during that, after it's defined for you, then we have the five key areas. We have the, we, in, in Genesis starts the formulation, and then the calling out in Exodus, then the establishment in 1 Samuel, and then we see their demise after David and Solomon, and then we see the captivity. And it completely gives you a complete understanding of what God is doing in the Old Testament. And, you know, what I want to always try to do for you is to put the Bible together for you. I never want to leave a lot of loose ends out. You'll notice that if you've been around here any length of time, I don't preach a lot of personal things. If I can't substantiate it into the Scriptures, Uh, then, you know, I'm not really interested in it. And when it comes to understanding John, where we're starting today, we're going to follow the same principles that uh, we teach in everything. You know, I always say it's not enough just to know the books of the Bible, but we have to understand the history and the concepts about those books. And in time, as we as we do it, and, and, and you lay your Bible out, there's no question about this, you lay your Bible out one book at a time. And then once you get good with that, then you lay the books out one chapter at a time, and then as you really get good with it, then you lay them out one verse at a time. But putting those books in the order of what they teach and what they bring us, each one will have its own layout that will fit together Uh, and form uh, uh, form up for us what we know is the whole Bible. And just like in the Old Testament, he has Genesis first, and then four historical accounts that set us on a course of what God's doing and calling out his nation. When we come to the New Testament, we have the four historical books first, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then God gives us the definitive book for the New Testament. There's two key books in your Bible that if you're ever going to figure out your Bible and get a handle on it, you're going to have to see and understand. For the Old Testament of what God is doing, it's Genesis. In the New Testament, for what God is doing, it's the book of Acts. And those four historical books will give us who Christ is, show us his first coming, and, and then to the world. And then it'll deal with his death, burial, and resurrection and how he changed the world. And after that happens, you have the next book, the book of Acts. And from the four Gospels, we know we move into the New Testament. We move into the church age. And then the book of Acts, our defining book for the New Testament, then shows and defines for you and me all that's going to happen for the next 2,000 years. Those two books have to be in your mindset of what they'll do for you. And, and when it comes to the book of John this morning, there's a number of things that I want you to begin to grasp. First of all, I want you to understand the context of the Gospel of John. And what I'm about to give you, I've given you before part of it, but it's a little-known truth when it comes to uh, people out there with, in churches today. And that is that the four Gospels will show us four different aspects of Christ. Here again, getting each book laid out for yourself that you understand how that each one works. In Matthew, and you've heard me say this before, we have Christ portrayed as the King of the Jews. Matthew is a political book. Matthew deals with the establishment of the kingdom of heaven. So, it's no wonder that 52 times more than any other of the other three books, 52 times you'll find a reference to the kingdom of heaven or the establishment of this kingdom. So, we'll find in Matthew that the genealogy of Christ will go back through the kingly line because Matthew portrays him as, a, as the king of the Jews, and it's a political book. Huh? So God chose a political official, a tax collector, a government official, to write the book of Matthew, which deals with the political side of things. Then we have Mark. Mark, he's portrayed as a servant. You'll remember this Mark here is John Mark of your Bible. And you'll remember that John Mark was the young man that is a great lesson for us in learning how to be a servant. He goes with Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary trip, and you know what happens. He, for whatever reason, leaves them in the middle of what they're doing and runs home and goes back uh, back home and leaves those guys hanging out there. And a little bit later on, when Barnabas and Paul are deciding to go on their second missionary trip, Barnabas wants to take John Mark along again. And Paul says, no way. Now, he bailed on us last time. We are not going to have that again. And in Acts chapter 15, uh, verse 36 through 41, the Bible says that the contention between Paul and Barnabas got so great that they actually split and went their separate ways. And of course, uh, there's some great lessons in that. Later on, John Mark obviously grows. He obviously matures. He obviously is no longer what he was on the first missionary trip, and he's learned his lessons, and he's come along. And later, Paul sees that he's grown up, and in the last book that Paul writes, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, he tells Timothy that when he comes to bring Mark with him because he's profitable for the ministry. And we see in that great study there, which we're just kind of jumping over this morning, but wow, every one of these. We begin to see that the pattern of growth. Paul could see a young man who failed at the beginning, but not write him off and watch how God used his failures to make him what God wanted him to be. And and, uh, so it was Mark that was chosen to write the gospel of Mark, which portrays the Lord Jesus Christ as a servant because Mark had learned to be that servant. So in Mark, you'll find no genealogy because a servant doesn't have a genealogy. He's a slave. In Luke, you'll find out he's laid out as the son of man. A human son. Now watch this. So this account is written by a physician. A medical doctor who gives the account of his physical birth. Dr. Luke. Luke. And he gives us the account of his birth and we see defined for us uh, all of the aspects of him coming as the son of man in a human form. And the book of Luke and that in the Dr. Luke laying this out, oh boy, another great lesson. This is where you find out, no matter what the Catholics say, no matter what the government says, no matter what the doctors say, no matter what the medical world says, this is where you get from a medical doctor that God chose to write the account of the birth of his son, when as far as God's concerned, life really begins. Credible book. And so in Luke. Dealing with him as the Son of Man, you'll find his genealogy going back through the human line, through Mary. And he's portrayed as the Son of Man. Then we come to the Gospel of John, where we're going to start today. And in this book, he's defined as the eternal Son of God. And so his genealogy is found in chapter 1 and verse 1, 2, and 3, where his genealogy now, where Matthew went through the line of the kings, where in, 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 Luke, it went, or in uh, Luke it went back through Mary, here it goes back to God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Gospel of John will deal for us and show for us uh, that uh, who he really is. Now, where Matthew was written by a tax collector, political official, Uh, Mark was written by a man who had to learn to be a servant, and Luke was uh, written by a man who uh, uh, is a uh, medical doctor, and we get all the insight based on their professions about what it was. John is written by a man who is the greatest type and the greatest picture of what your life and my life should be as a child of God. And he deals with the things that you and I need to understand. And this puts the gospel of John on a whole different level because he's dealing with things that you and I ought to know that when John writes, he has insight that you and I ought to have because John is the greatest picture of what your life should be and my life should be in understanding the eternal son of God. Now that's your four accounts of the gospels. And I might say, the Bible being consistent, you're going to have four accounts of the second coming of Christ. You have four accounts of the first one. You're going to have four accounts of the second one. But here it comes. Now, if you want to take this even further and you want to see this, how God and the Bible goes together, in the Old Testament, you have references to four branches, like branches on a tree. Four branches are mentioned. And each one of those branches will match up to Christ in each one of these Gospels. For instance, in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, it talks about the righteous branch that is a king. There's Matthew. In Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8, it talks about my servant, the branch. There's Mark. And in Zechariah chapter 6 verse 12, it says, Behold the man branch. There's Luke. And in Isaiah chapter 4 verse 2, it says, The branch of the Lord. And there's John. Now see how it all goes together? Your Bible is so constructed... And put together that everything, no matter where you go, and you're going to see that today as we come through, begin to come through the Gospel of John. And then I want to talk about the author himself. We must look at the writer of our Gospel, John, why he was chosen to write the book and reveal Christ to us as the Son of God. Now, as I've already said, and most of you are aware of this if you've been around here at any length of time, the greatest picture of what a New Testament Christian should be will be the Apostle John. In the Old Testament, you have five wisdom books. We just finished one of them. You have Psalms, you have Song of Solomon, you have the book of Proverbs, you have Ecclesiastes. And then you have the book of Job. But in the New Testament, you also have five wisdom books. And every one of them is written by John. You have the Gospel of John. You have 1 John. You have Second John. You have Third John. And then you have the book of Revelation. What that should show you and me. Now, I can't speak for you, but what that shows me is that the greatest type of a Christian that you and I should be had the wisdom down of the Old Testament to understand, and when he wrote his five books, they become the five wisdom books of the New Testament. Each one of those books will lay out a key part of God and what he's doing. And the question is, Most of God's people can never lay it out. I always give people, I always give people five years, you know, before I even question anything about the Bible, what do you know or what you don't know. It takes at least that long to get it figured out. But my question today is, why do some of God's people go their whole life and not see any of this? What are we spending our time doing when the God has given us the greatest example And what we should be. I mean, John, I don't know if you all know this. We've talked about it before. In John 13, 23, he's the only one of the 12 who goes the distance. He's the only one of the 12 that winds up at the crucifixion. I mean, I've told you before, you have the 12 apostles. And I showed you how that that all of Christianity kind of shakes down into this little model. You have the 12 apostles which bigger Christianity but within the 12 one was a phony and that tells me that in churches and Christianity today not everybody who says they're saved is truly saved but then within what was left you only had three guys Peter James and John who get honorable mention in seeing the great things that God does the Mount of Transfiguration the rising of Jarvis daughter When you look at the inner three, it's Peter, James, and John. And the rest of them are not even mentioned. It goes to show me that God's people who are going to get the job done are always going to be in the minority. It's not going to be all of the twelve. It was three. Oh, and then let's just get right down to it. When push come to shove, when things really got chaotic... When things began to go to pieces, even the inner three went their way. And only one man, one man, John, had the courage and the guts and the fortitude to stand there at the cross where the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. And it's an incredible picture. You know, John chapter 13, verse 23 John is the only apostle that Jesus says that he loves. Now, I know he loved them all. I I know he did. But the point he's trying to make, and I know that God loves all of his saved children. But let's be honest. We don't all love him the same way he loves us. And we get upset sometimes because we think that people have favorites, you know. I got news for you, pal. God has favorites. And out of the 12, his favorite was John. Now, he loved them all, and he did some tremendous things for them, and they did some tremendous things for him, the inner three. But at the end of the day, it was John. And when he's standing down there, incredible picture. When he's standing down there at the foot of the cross and Jesus is hanging on it, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is standing next to him. And Jesus looks down and says to both of them, he says to John, John, uh, she is now your mother. Mom, he is now your son. And people read that and just look at that and just scratch their head and blink like a frog in a hailstorm, never get a thing out of it. John's a type of the church. Mary's a type of the nation of Israel. And what he did with that little act right there is fulfilled Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 11, which tells us that the church now has taken the watch care of the nation of Israel, typified by Mary. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, you won't get that on Facebook, but you'll get that here. In John chapter 13, verse 25... He's the only man in the history of the Bible who lay, in history, who actually laid his head on the breast of the Lord Jesus Christ and heard the heart of God encased in the Son of Man. Now, I'm gonna tell you something. He's the only man in the Bible and the only man in history. But I'll tell you what that's a picture of you and me and if you think for a minute that that's not a picture of where you and i ought to be and if you want to get through life and you want to get through the things of life and become the kind of christian you need to be you're never going to do that unless you get god's heartbeat we got a lot of christians today but they're following their own heartbeat they're doing their own thing not john He laid his head on the breast of the Lord Jesus Christ and heard the very heartbeat of God. Incredible model for you and for me. Incredible about us getting God's heartbeat. Now, you'll also need to see this, the theme of the book or the purpose of the book Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but in every book of the Bible, Christ will be portrayed in that book in a certain way. I've given them to you before. They're on the website. And in the Gospel of John, Christ is portrayed, obviously, as the Son of God. Now, the Gospel of John will be given to us For a man to believe and to get saved and then to believe on Christ. And the key verse will be John chapter 20 verse 31. This is the definitive verse of the gospel of John. But it shows you why John was written. But these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that believing you might have life through his name. Then very clearly, John is written to get people saved. The people who, who print Bibles, you know, Milford, Ohio, and those places that, that uh, do such a great job, uh, many times they'll just print two books of the Bible and pass those out, John's and Romans. Because John will show a man, John is the greatest tract on the planet to show you how to get saved if you'll read it. And then Romans is the greatest book to show you what you do after you get saved, or what you should believe. It's incredible. So, the, the key, you know, Thursday night, somebody asked a question about I, uh, the name of God. And I took you back to Exodus early back there and showed you the, the I am that I am and how that was the tetragrammaton that, that uh, set up the word Jehovah. And so, I am, wherever you find it, and I told you to watch it in the Bible, where you find the word I am, you've got to look at it, because it's a reference, that's a word that you'll always find connected with Christ. And in the Gospel of John, he's portrayed as the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. So guess what? Over 60 times in that one book, you find the phrase I am. Now, John was written so you and I would believe. That's what it says. That's why it was given. He wrote that book by the greatest Christian that ever lived as the greatest tract that any man could ever have. And John declares in that that he is the Son of God, and the only way you can get saved is to trust Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior. And he writes these things that you would believe so, you would find the word believe in the Gospel of John 98 times. Now, for a moment, let us just twist a little thing around here. You compare the Gospel of John with 1 John. And I want you to see this to see how it goes in a consistency. In 1 John, there will be your walk with God after you get saved. Where John, the gospel, talks about getting saved, the next book that he writes, 1 John, will talk about your walk with God after you're saved. And it says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. It's on the walk. It's on knowing him. It's on after you believe, then you get to know him, and through knowing him, you walk with him. And the key verse is found there in 1 John chapter 5, uh, verse, uh, 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 I think it's 15 or 16, and it says this. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life. Now notice the similarities. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, or John chapter 20 verse 31 says, but these things are written unto you. 1 John chapter 5 says, These things have I written unto you. One is written to get you saved, Gospel of John. The other was written to show you what you need to know about him. So you'll find the I am 60 times in the Gospel. You'll find the word believe 98 times in the Gospel. And when it comes to that little book of 1 John, which is only five chapters, you find the word knowing or variations of it 38 times. Bible's incredible. Now, see how easy that was? Let me tell you something, folks, when it comes... And you know what? Every Bible scholar out there, every Bible teacher out there, every pastor on this planet, because he doesn't get his messages from the Bible, he gets from another book, he will tell you the theme of 1 John is love. And that idiot will say that Never stopping and looking at over 38 times in five chapters, the theme of that book is knowing. But that's Christianity today, isn't it? That's you. That's me. It's all of us. We all try to love Him before we ever try to know Him. I wonder why it doesn't work for us. <laughs> oh. Now we also need to see the outline of this book. we got to get this stuff down before we actually get into the book. So we need to see the outline of the book. And John will outline uh, Christ's earthly ministry from John the Baptist when it finally starts up to uh, his crucifixion. And you're going to find, this is an easy dividing up of the book for you, you're going to find that the Gospel of John is simply built around four Passovers, and you break those down in your Bible, you got it. The first Passover is from one one to two thirteen. That'll be the first six months of his ministry. The second Passover, which will be the first full year, will be two thirteen to five one. The third Passover will be six four to twelve one. And then the fourth Passover, uh, the third full year, bringing up to the fourth one, will be, uh, you know, where he comes up to the, uh, up to the, uh, to be the Passion Lamb or the Sacrificial Lamb uh, found in Exodus chapter 12. Now, now, now let me break it down for you, even better than that. If you want to get a breakdown chapter by chapter of John, so as I go through these over the next 30, 40 years, you'll have it down. Here it comes, chapter by chapter. Chapter 1 through chapter uh, 2, verse 13, dealing with up to the first Passover. You have the incarnation up to his baptism, and then you have his first miracle, and then you come to the first Passover. In chapter 2 through 13, up to 5 1. In chapter 2, you have the first cleansing of the temple. Chapter 3, you have the story of Nicodemus. Chapter 4, you have the woman at the well. Chapter 5, you have the story about the sheep pool. And then you come up to the second Passover. In chapter 5, 1 through 6, 4, you have the controversy over his deity. Of being the Son of God, which will bring you up to the third Passover. And then... Up through the fourth Passover, chapter 6 through ch- uh, 4, up through 12, one. In chapter 6, he declares himself to be the bread of life. In chapter 7, you have another controversy with the Pharisees. In chapter 8, uh, he, the woman taking an adultery story. In chapter 9, you have the blind man there that he heals. In chapter 10, he declares himself to be the good shepherd. And in chapter 11 and 12, you have the raising of Lazarus. Now... That brings us almost up to his crucifixion. And chapters 13 through 25 all deal with the last night before he becomes the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world at the fourth Passover. So in chapter 13, you have his foot washing. In chapter 14, you have the Holy Spirit of God coming as the comforter. Now, in chapter 15, he's called the true vine. In chapter 16, again, he talks about the coming Holy Spirit of God and his prayer. In chapter 17, he lays out what we know as the Lord's Prayer. Chapter 18, he's betrayed that night. Chapter 19, we have his trial and his conviction, or crucifixion. In chapter 20, then we have his resurrection. In chapter 21 is where he meets Peter, after the resurrection, and him and Peter are restored. Because you remember, Peter denied him. Now look at this. There's no better way that that book could end. Because Peter is a type of the nation of Israel, and Peter denied him, just like Israel has denied him. But when he comes back, just like at the first coming, Peter got restored, type of the nation of Israel, Israel's going to get restored when he comes back the second time. Can't beat it, man. You just can't beat it. John has great insight. And if there's anything I want you to see today for you, I want you to understand and see why he has that insight. Now, there's another thing you will want to remember, and this sets John completely apart from all the other writers and really makes him an incredible picture of what you and I are, or should I say should be. Because when John writes, he has all of the Old Testament and the New Testament, everything, laying on the table before him. He's the last writer. He writes around 90 AD. Every other book of the Bible had been done for probably 25, 30 years. So when John sits down to write, His insight is into what he already has in front of him to see where everything is going. And in that, he has all of what God is doing and he understands like we should. So he gives you and me five wisdom books that completely lays out every aspect. And I'm going to give it to you before we get done today. And then he writes the capstone of the Bible, the book of Revelation. <clears throat> a complete and total breakdown of the church age, <clears throat> the rapture, the judgment seat, the tribulation, the second coming, the millennium, the new heavens and a new earth, and an eternity. And he writes, and what he writes <clears throat> for us, and lays out for us by his writings, is what the church has believed for the last 2,000 years, <clears throat> in spite of all the heresy that has come along, is that John's writing established and foundationalize the great doctrinal teaching of the premillennial return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've told you many, many times in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, the Bible Paul says, The things that, that I've committed to you, you commit to faithful men. And John does that. He follows that principle because what we believe today, we got from what John wrote. Now, John is the only writer in the Bible that goes from an apostle clearly into the New Testament church age and is an important writer that it covers it all. I mean, there's other people that did it, but John is the only one that did it that completely gave us a record of when he was with Christ, and then he transitioned into the church age and sees what's going on. And I want to introduce you this morning to probably the greatest type of what your life and my life should be anywhere in the Word of God <coughs> John Zebedee, the brother of James. And in his book, it will contain 21 chapters, 879 verses, and 19,094 words. And it's written between 88 AD and 90 AD, right after the destruction of Jerusalem. The only man who had his ear pressed up against the heartbeat of God, and then wrote to us the wisdom book based on what he heard. John Shaw, the 20 and the 21st century. He had tremendous insight in prophecy of laying out exactly where the church is at today. But actually no man in either time, the 20 or the 21st century ever saw what John saw unless he had and believed the King James sixteen eleven authorized version. Every Bible college missed it. Every scholar missed it. Every seminary missed it. And 99.999% of the pastors missed it along with their entire congregation. And even the ones, even in many cases, the ones that saw it either didn't really believe it or never acted upon it. And churches are full of people like that. For in our world of Christianity, there's going to come some tough times. And we as God's people need to understand what John saw. Now, allow me to read our first three verses here. He simply says, In the beginning was the word, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same, the Word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We do love you today. We pray, Father, as we begin to open up this great book, that you'll open up our hearts, our minds, Allow these good people who have made the pilgrimage here today to hear your word, <coughs> to let the word of God uh, touch their life. We thank you for uh, the testimony of the many, many, many people around this world that rely on what these people have provided for them, a way to hear the Bible taught, <coughs> learn the Bible, grow in the Bible. And Lord, we do thank you and praise you for that. And we just ask your blessings upon this time. In Jesus' name, is sake we ask it. Amen. Now, look at verse 1 here for a moment. <clears throat> this first verse here, it begins where the Bible begins in Genesis one one, and it also begins where the Bible begins in the book of 1 John, in the beginning, the beginning of the creation. Now, <clears throat> this is no, <clears throat> there's no clearer verse anywhere in the Bible that will tell you and I that Jesus Christ and the Word of God are one and the same. How God's people got fooled by scholarship, fooled by education that would let somebody destroy John chapter 1, verse 1. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You cannot separate God from His Word. <clears throat> and that is the key. That oneness is the key to everything that we have, or should I say, we don't have today. Down through the history of the church, you will find, and I've talked about this many, many times, this unbroken line of biblical teaching. And I've showed you very clearly when we've come through church history that there is a non-biblical line and there is a biblical line. And I've told you before how that all history is nothing more than relatively God moving down through history to do what he's going to do and the devil moving in opposition to stop that. So you'll also find within the Christianity, the non-biblical line, that they will try to separate the truth that God and the Bible are one. And they will do this, you know, uh, basically by two concepts. You'll find that, uh, and it's absolutely true, it's a fact, the true church, the church of Jesus Christ, will protect the truth of the Word of God. And scholarship and groups outside the false church, based on scholarship, based on rejecting the Bible, and 1-1, will always destroy the truth of the Word of God. Now, I've said it many, many times <clears throat> that the church is God's total structure for every child of God. And uh, I, 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 I'm told all the time by people, well, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. No, you don't. But you have, you have to go to church to be a good Christian. And, uh, you know, it's just that simple. The job of the church is to teach and to edify and to be a place of safety and protection. And as you come down through church history, it was the church, the true church, that decided what books should be in the Bible. That's why you only got 66. And yet you could go to some bookstore out there and you could find a book on the lost books of the Bible, like the Bible lost these books. No, it was the church that decided what ones were gonna go in. It was the church that decided what was heresy. You see, I've talked to this before. You get time to time, idiots come into every church that got some teaching that God only gave them. And the moment you hear that, you know that they're heretics simply because we know and we believe, no matter what some idiot wants to do with it, we know and believe that the church decided real truth. We just can't find what you're putting out there in anything in church history. So, out the door. It was them in Revelation chapter 2 verse 2 in the first church at Ephesus. It was the church, the true line that decided who were really apostles. Because everybody wanted to be one. I mean, I'm telling you, down at Walmart back there, they were selling apostle suits right out the door. And they decided, for you and for me, what was established truth. And if this church is truly in that biblical line then our job is to hold to that truth and to make sure, no matter what happens, that that truth goes on. That generations from now, if Jesus doesn't come, that the truth is still here. The devil in the world will do its best to separate you from his truth. One way or the other. A couple of weeks ago, I preached a message on the year 2020. And I got a, a call, this uh, one last week and two this week, from t- three different pastors who follow our website. And each of them uh, wanted to sit down and talk with me about where do they go from here with their churches. And I felt like, you know, it was probably a better way to do it was to get all three of them together on a conference call and, and sit down and, and, and try to help them and, and find out where they're at and what they're struggling with. And uh, we had about an hour and a half, two-hour conversation. Nice guys, Bible-believing guys, but they're struggling, just like all churches. They have the issues that uh, that everybody is facing right now, and they 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 heard that 2020 message what, and they wanted they wanted they wanted to find out. Okay, we believe that we know that that's where it's at and where it's going, but help us. How do I go back to my church? And what do I do? I mean, all of them said it. This is uncharted waters. Nobody's ever sailed this sea before. And I've got people that I'm responsible for that are looking to me for leadership. And frankly, Bob, I just don't know how I'm going to to be able to do this. So I talked with them and I told them. I said, you know, I try to learn from everything that I go through. And, you know, I, I realized that, you know, when I preached that message on the year 2020, um, which was the end of Proverbs, I said, there's a lot of things that, you know, that I saw that, you know, the average Christian probably is not ready for. And, and I said, in your churches, there's no different than mine and no different than others. You got three types of people in your church faced with this virus situation that we're up against. And your church is no different than mine. You have the same three in yours that I have in mine. And and this guy does too. And this guy does too. And every other pastor that I've talked about. And you're going to have to understand that. And you're going to have to come where I had to come and understand the times that we're in. And I told him, I said, you know, the first kind of person that you're going to have in your church that isn't going to come to church are the people who are have medical issues and conditions that they need to stay home. And uh, they do not need to expose themselves to this, and they absolutely need to uh, be taken care of, be checked on, but they need to stay home because we're coming through this now, and they're already in a weakened condition and getting it. uh, You do not want to take that chance. So they need to be encouraged to stay there. And then I said, you're going to have a second group. And that second group are people who just are afraid to get out in it. They may not have any underlying medical conditions, but they're just afraid that they don't want to get it. They don't want to be around it. And so they're, you know, have elected that they're going to stay home. And it's a thing where, and and I told them, I said, you cannot judge anybody in your church by any three of these because I'm going to tell you something it's a thing where everybody has to get this one for yourself. There is no way I am going to and I told these guys there's no way you want to stand up in your pulpit and criticize anybody for not coming simply because everybody has to make their own choice, and that choice is going to be based at where they 're at with the Lord and what is important to them and i don 't i'm not getting into that I, I i you can't either through this one guys everybody is going to have to make your own call based on what the bible says where you're at with the lord and what you got going with him and so i said you're going to have people like that i have them in my church and they'll, you know they'll they they'll they'll do uh, you know they 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 don't they're afraid they're fearful it's a very fearful time it's a time where there's a lot of uncertainty, and uh, in 2020 messages that I preached was the only tip of the iceberg of what's coming our way. And then I said, the third one, and I said, we would be, guys, I said, we would be stupid if we didn't know this. And they all laughed and said, yeah, you're right. The third will be that there will be people out there who will use any excuse not to come to church. And the coronavirus is a great cover story for them. They don't really want to be here anyhow. They don't want to be part of what's going on. Uh, you know, it's a thing where uh, one, guy, one guy said to me, he says, you know, I had, a, I had people last week, I said, they called me and said that they weren't coming back to the church. And I said, were they really good people? And he says, well, no, they're just very nominal when they come. And, they said that they, and, I, and, I, and he said, I didn't know how to answer them. I said, well, what I'd have done, I'd have answered them back. And I said, you know, how do you leave something that you're never really a part of to begin with. You see, I told these guys if you have no investment in your church, if you don't have people counting on you, if you're not invested in something that God is doing, then what reason do you have to come back? I get it. And I told them, I said, you're gonna find that there are people who need to stay home legitimately there are people who think they need to stay home and they they're legit they're legit I that's fine but you're also going to find that there's people that are not um, they're just using it because they don't want to do anything with God and this is a convenience for them I mean who would not if you're a nominal person I'm not seeing any of you guys but if you're a nominal person child of God and you don't like coming to church anyhow what a great cover story you got Now boy if you think that isn't true I said it's true. And I told him, I said, you know, here's what I've learned. And I said, in my years in preaching, which is almost 50 now, I made two errors in my hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the big $25 word for teaching the Bible. I call it hemorrhoid neutics. But I made two mistakes. <clears throat> I've told you about the one. <clears throat> I told you how that back in the seventies, when I was just getting into it, and we were talking about the Laodicean church, and God was going to have a faithful remnant and a faithful few that was going to do the work. <clears throat> we all thought—wasn't just me—we all thought that that was the. Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Lutherans who once had the Bible, but then went back to Rome. And honestly, back in the 70s, we thought that that was the Laodicean church and that the Baptist church (coughs) was the true line, which it was. But as time went on and we got into the 80s and the 90s and in 2000, I thought, and we were wrong about that. Because when we got into the 80s and the 90s, we actually saw that the Baptist church that we thought was the true church back there, a bunch of people departed from that and went to be part of the neo-evangelical crowd. And here again, what was left was the Bible believers that now we thought churches like ours, I told these guys, churches like yours. I actually thought that we were the remnant out of that. And that was my second mistake. And I told them this. I said, I've come to the conclusion now. And we all know this, that God does everything he meaningfully he does with a remnant. And I thought back in the 70s, it was the Baptist church. I thought back in 2000, it was the Bible-believing churches. But now when we see what is coming on around us, when we see what is happening, I'm telling you right now, as I told them, you're going to see out of the Bible-believing churches that claim to believe the Bible, hold the Bible, you're going to see out of this what's coming and what's already here, but even more so what's coming, you're going to see God call out another remnant. And this will probably be the last remnant. I I told you in that 2020 message, wait wait till the next couple of years. You see, we talk about the Laodicean in church, and I've told you before, but even I didn't think it through. Laodicea means rights of the people. And we are living in a time right now where Bible's gone, churches are gone, and all this whole country cares about is the rights of people, and God's rights aren't ever even in it. Wait till that happens. Let's see what you do. I mean, we've already seen what so many of God's people have called. You realize there was a poll taken a while back, and it said of Christians, quote-unquote Christians, and they said 75% of them said they would not go back to church during this time. Let's see what you do. When two years from now, churches like this have a target on their back and we are labeled as racist, we are labeled, and I'm telling you right now, if you don't think that the establishment wants to get rid of Bible-believing churches, you woke up on the wrong side of the bed. I'm telling you right now, back in the 70s and the 80s, Bob Jones University, Greenville, South Carolina, lost their tax status because they wouldn't allow blacks to come to that university. And the federal government came in and jerked their tax exemption because of the fact that they wouldn't allow blacks to come to their school. Now, that's racist. No question about it. But I want to tell you, when it comes to churches today, it ain't going to be the issue of race with black people. Because now we have transgenders, we have same-sex marriages, we have homosexuals and lesbians, that the whole world says is now another unit identity. What are you going to do when all of this country gets on board that if you don't accept that, if you, you, get, you get, you use a wrong word describing a black man and you get taken to court. What happens? You saw what happens when a guy who, I guess he was a Christian, he had a bakery, refused to do a wedding cake for two lesbians or two gay, whatever the case may be. You saw the flock that he got? Wait in two years when this country completely changes, and it's going to change in November. You're going to get a group of people in there that hate churches like this. They despise people like you, and their whole agenda is to get rid of us. What are you going to do? I mean, you won't come to church now because you're afraid you're going to get it. Hey, that's your choice. I'm good with that. What are you going to do when you might lose your job or be labeled a racist because you won't accept same sex marriages? What are you going to do when they stand outside of this church and take pictures of you coming to church and then put you over your lovely Facebook and declare you? Are you going to stand then? You see, it comes down to this, folks. You're either going to hide under a rock or you're going to hide in the rock. Do you not know where this country is going? Do you not know that President Trump this last week signed in a thing, an agreement that when they do get a coronavirus uh, vaccine and it becomes available, he is now charged... First time in the history of this country, he's given the responsibility of who gets it and who doesn't get it to the military. They're going to work in conjunction with the CDC, but it's the military. What is the military? I'll tell you what it's got. This country's headed for a police state setup. And they're going to come in and they're going to take everything that we had that we value. You forget your freedoms that you once had. You can kiss them goodbye. When this thing goes down, it's going down. And all that's going to be left standing is God's people that says, up your nose with a rubber hose. I'm staying where I'm at. Hide under the rock or hide in the rock. Uh, I, I told these pastors, I said, what is coming our way is a country that cares more about the rights of the people, and you will not have any rights. They will target us. They will target you. You'll maybe lose. And you know what they said? Again, somebody said, and they said, we can't force anybody to get the virus. Because constitutionally, we can't make you do it. You know what they do? And they said it. So you know what we'll do? We'll look at you and we'll say, if you don't get it, then you're going to be a threat to everybody else, so it's going to cost us more money. So we're going to tax every one of you who won't get it, get a vaccine that's not been proven, that may do some other damage, that they have no clue, that they've rushed in, and if you don't take it, the federal government will fine you $10,000 a year. And then they'll fix it so you can't go to work just like your kids can't go to school without certain vaccines. Then what are you going to do? Hey, at some point, folks, you better get your head out of wherever it's at. And you better quit worrying about Corona's 19 and your little fears about it. And that's you. I have no problem with it. You, every man's got to figure it out for yourself. But you better get a big pencil and a lot of paper, because there's going to be a lot of figuring coming coming your way. Because it ain't over. They want this country. They want you and me out of it. They want Bible Christianity out of it. And the greatest thing the world has done is to try to separate God and His Word. And God's people let them do it. And now, you, you know, I, I, I and this is so true. I told the guys this. I said, when this all broke out, the medical world, God bless them, the heroes, the medical world told us that if you had bad deficiencies medically, that there was a real risk for you getting coronavirus because you may not live and it may kill you. And we've seen that happen. But I told these guys, I got another angle for you. Most of God's people, before it ever hit, were spiritually indeficient. They had spiritually underlying conditions. And when the virus hit, it killed them spiritually. Because they didn't have the courage to stand up and say, what God is doing in my world is more important than what the world is doing. And hey, I'm not fighting anybody. I defend whatever decision you make. Unfortunately, unfortunately, Forget I'm a pastor. Unfortunately, as a born-again child of God, Bible believer, who believes the book, I don't have that luxury. And all down through history, the devil has used every means at his disposal to separate God's people from the only thing that will keep them safe. Safe from hell through salvation, safe from the world through your walk with God, through the word of God saved, through the word of God your walk. And you better see all of this and what is uh, this is a defining moment. You can pretend it isn't. you can you can whine about it and complain of what you don't like. I'm telling you right now with what's coming and where we're at, John saw it, John saw it in the book of Revelation, he wrote about it. we don't want to see it. And this is a defining moment. Not for the church, though it is. But whatever your decision is, and that's between you and the Lord, and I have no care one way or the other. I only got to take care of what's me here. But I am telling you right now, this is the defining moment for all of us. And I believe with all my heart that God in these last days is calling out his remnant. That no matter where it goes, no matter what happens, If they throw us all in jail, then we start a jail ministry. Whatever they do, we take a stand. And at the end of the day, I am telling you, you're going to see Christians bail out of Bible-believing churches like rats off a sinking ship. And simply know that you cannot have both the book to work for you outside the structure that God put it in. And no matter where you're at in any of this, you better get a plan for the unbroken line of truth. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There are some things about God you simply cannot separate in your Christian life. You know the first thing they did? The first thing they did is they took the book from you and told it that it was full of errors and it was just a translation by man. You know, the second thing they took, they took God's structure, the church, and they turned it into a Super Bowl halftime show. And the church age, there's three things that are essential to your walk with God and your relationship with God. It's the Word of God, the Holy Spirit of God in the New Testament local church. And where every child of God, I told you Thursday night, Whenever a child of God stumbles and falls, it'll be in those three areas. And the world and Christianity will try to separate you from the three, and it will always lead to a disaster. Now look at verse 1 again. I promised these guys that we're going to work together and I'm going to help them. And they've got some more questions and they've got some issues that they are going to have to deal with. And I said, hey, look, I said, uh, you know, I'll help you any way that I can. But you need to go back and realize. And I've come come to the conclusion, I'm just telling you right now. I've come to the conclusion, and you might as well know this, that I'm done trying to build a church. All of our outreaches are shut down and probably will never come back. I'm done trying to build a church. They'll have people come in that you bring in and visitors and get saved, praise the Lord, but it ain't ever going to be like it once was. It is never going to be that way. And I have come to the place in my mind that I am not going to, I mean, if somebody comes in and we decide, I mean, I'm all for it, but I'm saying, I understand in my mind the days of trying to build a church is over. My goal right now, starting in a couple of weeks, is going to build a remnant. Because we're going to have to stand together. I'll show you that before we're finished here this morning. Let's move on. Now look at now look at verse one and first John chapter one. They both say in the beginning, just like Genesis chapter one one. Now this beginning has and is one of the most misunderstood and unknown aspects of all of the Bible. And I'm asked this all the time how did an eternal God have a beginning? You probably have heard that one. How did a God in eternity with no time uh, have a beginning? Uh, it says, in the beginning, uh, Genesis one, God created the heaven and the earth. How did a God who has no beginning have a beginning? And now, those are all legitimate questions, but based on the fact that somebody not spent a lot of time in the Bible. Now, the answer to this, the beginning, will be found in the deepest chapter in all the Bible. That will be Proverbs chapter 8. And it sets up the platform and the foundation of understanding God and the Bible and His whole purpose. This great chapter reveals Christ in three fundamental aspects. Proverbs chapter 8. First off, it shows you Christ in God before Genesis 1 1. Then it comes on down and shows you Christ coming out of the Godhead, Genesis 1 1 and 1 2. The manifestation of Christ. You'll find that in John chapter 17, verse 8. And then the third aspect is Christ then going into the world, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as the begotten eternal Son of God. And in verse 22, it says, of Proverbs chapter 8, he says, The Lord possessed me, here it comes definition, in the beginning of his way. And that beginning in Genesis 1 1 and John chapter 1 and 1 John chapter 1 wasn't the beginning of time, it's not the beginning of eternity. But rather the beginning of God's way, God's plan, where he's going now. The plan for the redemption of man and the establishment of his kingdom, both with Israel and the church. That in the beginning, God, that beginning isn't the beginning of time. It's the beginning of God going through a direction by which is going to be his way. And the Bible is a complete picture of that way. Now, this will give you a totally different viewpoint of the word way in the Bible. It will always go back to here, Genesis 1-1, John chapter 1-1, and 1 John 1-1. Where the Bible says in John 14-6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that gives another whole dimension to it. He's not just talking about a, di- a direction. He's talking about the way, the whole concept of what God's plan is. When the Bible says in Genesis 24, 27, I being in the way the Lord led, it's not just, well, here I am, Lord, just push me down the road. It's you being in the way, understanding the whole concept of what God is doing. Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, it says, God put a flaming sword uh, in front of the tree of life to keep the way. And you could take that way from Genesis chapter three and follow that way all the way to Revelation chapter 22, verse 14, in, in the direction. It's where God is going. Do you know where God's going? Are you in the way? Are you in the way? Genesis 18:19 it says, "To keep the way of the Lord." In Exodus 30, 21, a cloud to lead them uh, in the way. cloud during the day and a fire at night to lead them in the way. What way? The way to the promised land. The way to the establishment of the kingdom. The way to the millennium and the way into the eternity. God's structure and God's plan. In Numbers chapter 20, verse 17, it talks about the king's highway. You know what the king's highway is? It's the second coming of Christ when he comes back to Mount Sinai and he he goes up the king's highway that leads him into the Jerusalem and Eastern Gate. Not just a direction, it's the way God... Do you know the way God is going today? And are you part of that? Are you under the rock or are you hiding in the rock? Psalm 25, 8 teaches that we're to be in the way. John 25, 9, the meek, will he will teach his way. John 10, 1, uh, getting uh, to heaven some other way. It's not putting up a stepladder and crying. It's another way. It's, a, it's not a direction. It's a mindset. The way God says you got to get to heaven. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 says somebody forgetting the right way and then following the way of Balaam. There's two ways. There's God's way and the devil's way. And you know what God's people try to do? You like that mix and match concept. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says that we should know the way of righteousness. Now that little word way will... Will 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 we'll always take us back to the beginning of God. God's way. When He began to unfold His plan, unfold His purpose, His mind that He gave us in a book that we could completely understand which way He's going. That I being in the way. And in John chapter 1, he's telling us that God's only way is to have God, his book. And they are one, and you cannot separate them. And yet most Christians will try to do that. They'll claim to be saved, but they'll do whatever they want to do outside the structure and the principles of the word of God. Then verse 3 says, and all things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Two great truths here. He is the beginning of all things. Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. Verse 16 of Colossians 1 says, For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether to be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. Everything in the beginning. Of God's way was built for Christ, around Christ, and God Himself was the pattern for that. And He Himself will that perfect pattern unfolds to us through the Word of God. Romans chapter one, verse twenty says, For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead. Shall we find a pattern of threes through everything? We find that when God created everything for Christ before him and for him and everything that he is, that God used a pattern of himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So when it comes to your Bible, if you want to completely know your Bible and get God's way, you've got to have the doctrinal, historical, and the inspirational. If you're a complete person and you're saved, it's because you've got a body, soul, and spirit. When God made the creation, he made the sun, the moon, and the stars. When you breathe around us and walk out of here, we've got three things, the air, the land, and the sea, not four. And when you look at the kingdoms around you, you have animal, vegetable, and mineral, only three. When you look at the precious Lord Jesus Christ, you can call him Christ, you can call him the Lord, you can call him whatever you want, but if you want his perfect name, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, you want to break it down, was broken down in three things. The Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. In the New Testament, you have the Gospel, the Acts, and the Epistles. Everything is a pattern of God. He made everything after Himself. And God is omniscient, He's omnipresent, and He's omnipotent. And back to our Concept of the three things that God has given us, you got to have in your life. You got to have the Holy Spirit of God, you got to have the Word of God, and you got to have the structure of God. The true church. And in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it all starts out with the eternal concept of God and the Word of God being one. And later on, God's plan unfolds into the church age and to establish His spiritual kingdom. And those two now add a third one. Because when Jesus Christ went back to heaven, as I told you Thursday night, God replaced himself with three things. The Word of God, that's his mind. The Spirit of God, that's the Holy Spirit. And the body of Christ, the church, that's his body. And if you don't have those three in your life, in the way, you're kidding yourself. And John will be a model, a pattern of what we as Christians in the 20, 21st century should be. We're going to be a remnant. I mean, you should have learned a lesson. I should have caught it earlier. I can't believe it. When God God took them down into Egypt in Genesis, they were a remnant. When God sent them back after the seven years captivity, they were a remnant. When Christ showed up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were a remnant. And in the tribulation period, uh, they're going to be 144,000 wiped down to a remnant. Why would we ever not understand that at the end of the church age, is where we are at, in a church age that's never been tried or tested? You've never had your kids fed to pigs while you had to watch them and not deny Christ. You've never had your fingernails pulled out. You've never been burned at the stake. You've never been tortured for what you believe. We have had it really good, haven't we? Nobody kicked down your door and dragged you before a magistrate and whipped you with a cat of nine tails. And nobody ever put you in a barrel of pitch and then lit you on fire or let you run down the street screaming. Nobody ever took you and put your head in a bag full of snakes or rats while you screamed, while they wanted you to deny Christ. We've had it pretty good. And if you think for one second God is going to allow you, 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 you they go to heaven. Well, everybody else paid a price and we're going to slide? <laughs> Have I got some news for you, pal? The remnant has always paid a price. And you're sitting here right now, don't like what I'm saying, because deep down inside, you'll know you'll cut and run when the first knock on your door at 3 o'clock in the morning. When your boss calls you in and says, You don't have a job here anymore if you're still going to that church. When they're picking it out front, Channel 9, Channel 5, Channel 4, Channel 41, and they're all standing out there saying, How can you go to a racist church? How can you be part of an organization that downs gays and lesbians? How can you take that stand when there are people just like us? They got hearts, they got souls, they have feelings. How can you take a stand against something like that and say it's sin? They'll have to catch you at home. I'm telling you, folks, the quicker you understand that it is over, the better off we're all going to be. I have no illusion. I have no illusion that this church will go down to a handful. I'm not under any illusion. Because finally, praise the Lord, finally, finally, every one of us, finally, you're gonna have to pay your own price. (laughs) That's a good thing. Now you ain't gonna like what I'm about to say. And I don't like anybody getting sick or anybody dying. I'm talking about us here as a church. I won't tell you something. From my standpoint, I think the coronavirus is the, and, 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 and you ain't going to like it. I think the coronavirus is the greatest thing that ever hit Christianity. Because now we know where you're at. And I don't want to get sick. I don't want to lose my taste. Man, two McDonald's cheeseburgers with no taste, my life's over. shoot me. But I'm telling you, I didn't bring it here. God did. And if you haven't figured out yet that all down through the history of your Bible, God judged his people through other nations and the plagues that he sent them. You need to stop and get a GPS and find out what planet you're on. You just don't like it. It's an inconvenience for you. It's, it's an inconvenience that you have to go through this. You think I like it? You think I like... I was over at Petco the other day, and I walked in to get my get my dog some food, and I forgot my mask. But I, but I had already got it in the cart before I realized I didn't have it, and I'm thinking... Well, that's just all I need. I'm going to run up there and I'm going, to, I'm going to get this, get out of here. And then I heard it over the loudspeaker. Well, that's kind of bothering me. You ain't got the guts to come up and tell me yourself. Over the loudspeaker. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, please observe. We all must wear masks in the store. Now, why didn't you just say, the guy in the tan shorts with the t-shirt on that says, kill them all, let God sort them out. What? Well, you know what I did? Hey, when I got my mask, put it on. I don't like it. I hate everything about it. But having said that, get used to the new norm. Wait till November. Wait till the liberal left wing who hates this country, who hates your guns, who hates every liberty that you have, who are going to have one goal and one design, and that is to turn this country into socialistic government. And you know what? Learn from history. Germany, France, Czechoslovakia, Cuba, Russia. They list as endless. Every nation that went communist went communist when they got rid of two things. Guns and this book. And you sit around like an ostrich with your head in the sand. And John writes five wisdom books. And through those five window books, listen now, here it comes. He shows us God's way, five ways. The Gospel of John shows us God's way of salvation. The Epistle of 1 John shows us God's way to walk in fellowship with him. Second John shows us God's way with Israel. You'll find her called the Elect Lady. Third John, God's way for them in the tribulation period. And you'll find two men in 3 John, one wise and one foolish. Matthew chapter 25, the book of Proverbs. And then the book of Revelation, God's way down through all history. Now why don't you know that? Why are you surprised of what's happening? Why are you upset? Why were you not prepared for this? In John's time, the greatest disaster and ordeal was when Rome shut down the kingdom by killing the king. For the apostles, who is a picture of the church from early in our message. For the apostles, it was the end of everything. They were actually looking for him to establish the kingdom. My goodness, folks couple of chapters back, they're arguing who's going to be greater in the kingdom. Are you kidding me? They're looking for him to come and to establish the kingdom. What a disaster change of events when they come and haul him off the Pilate's Judgment Hall. What do you think was going through their mind? You think they were a little confused like we are? You think their plan for the establishment of the kingdom got dashed by Rome and our little plans of what we want to do in our little worlds get dashed by our Rome? You think that they weren't afraid? You think they weren't confused just like we are? You think they didn't have... Talk among themselves what's gonna happen? You think they, they 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 were didn't sleep at night because they're knock on the door that somebody gonna drag them out because you were with him? You think they didn't have fear and trembling and heartache and despair and confusion and disillusionment, just like we do. Do you actually think that this little petty thing we're going through could even compare with the day they came and took Jesus right out of your midst? I mean, come on. Can you not see all down through history, the world has tried to separate us from the very things of God? This was a time of treason. It was a time of confusion. It was a time of anger for many of them. It was a time that I felt, I'm sure they felt hopeless. I'm sure they woke up when he was gone. And they said to themselves, what do I do now? What do I do now? I've followed him for three and a half years. I believed everything that he said. What do I do now? You know what they did? The picture of the 12 who represent our church today, churches. They all fled. They all hid under a rock. Even the inner three. Peter, James, and John. Peter standing around the fire when somebody tried to associate him with Christ. He just cusses like the world so they know that he wasn't really one of them. James, you don't really know what happened to him. He ain't around. Out of all 12, only one goes the distance. John. A remnant a remnant out of the 12 men that saw the miracles saw him heal blind people straighten withered legs bring people back from the dead turn water to wine do all the the very people who saw the very miracles when crunch time came gone All but John, a remnant of God, and the twelve the rest of them the eleven, the rest of them missed they missed the greatest event the day that their Savior hung on the cross and gave up his kingship to be a sinner and they all missed it chapter one. And I'm telling you right now, that's like I told these young pastors, you're going to lose some people in your church. That's not always a bad thing. But you're going to lose some people because God is going to call out a remnant. And you're going to find, just like with the apostles I told them, who will stand and who will not. And everybody has to make their own call. Everybody has to make their own choice. But you and I are headed, this church, those pastors with their churches. And I told them, I said, I I feel bad for you. I said, I wish we'd have met earlier. Because the difference between my church and your church is I've spent the last 10, 12 years building a core. And I've built young men and young ladies that no matter what will come, we'll still get the job done. We'll find a way. And when push comes to shove, and they come down and they hammer us, then we'll we'll be the anvil that breaks their hammer. We will have the steel in our backbone and the gravel in our guts, and we will we will hold the line no matter what happens. We will not hide under a rock. We'll not look for excuses not to come to church. We will will be and do what God has called us to do, and we will do it to the best of our ability. Because you know what? That's what John did. But I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to take John's to get it done. If you haven't prepared, I told these guys, if you haven't prepared your people for what's coming, you're going to have a tougher time. My suggestion is that you go back to them and you clear off a spot today on Sunday and you just lay it out where you're at and what you got to do and where you're going. And then see who follows you. Now, what I'm about to say, I I don't want it to be taken the wrong way, but it, it is what it is based on where I'm at. I love you all. I die for every one of you. I do whatever I can do to help you. Anybody, whether you're listening today, whether you're upstairs, out in the foyer, or you're here. But I'm going to tell you right now, at the end of the day, I don't really give a flip if you stick with me or you don't. You have to make that decision for yourself because it's going to get tough. I only know one thing. Me and my house, will stand for the Lord. And I can't, I'm not asking anybody else to do it. I don't expect anybody else to do it. Things are going to get so bad and so tough, you wait till they come down and hammer you for coming to this church. Right now you get hammered because of the King James Bible, don't you? Sure you do, by your other friends. Where do you get hammered because of the stand we take on the world? When all the world now is against taking their stand against us. Where do you bait and trap us? Where do, you, where do they set us up? Way do they do the things that they're doing to everybody else out there in the world now, but it's coming our way. It's going to take a John. It's going to take a John to take that stand that you don't get around a campfire and curse like Peter. Don't go to church on Sunday. You don't be like James that you don't even hear from him anymore or the other 12 that panicked and ran. When push come to shove and John could have just as easily somebody said, he with him. Let's get another cross and crucify him. He didn't care. He loved him. And he'd heard the heartbeat of God. So he was willing to go the distance with God. And I'm going to tell you, the reason why God's people today won't go the distance is because they have never really heard the heartbeat. When you hear the heartbeat... I'm not saying you do foolish things. I'm not saying you do stupid things. I'm just saying you've got a higher calling. Greater is he that is in you that's in the world. And perfect love casteth out fear. And we find a way to get it done. We find a way to strengthen our core. We find a way to strengthen what we have. You're always going to have peripheral people that when it it, 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 it it hits the fan, they ain't nowhere to be found. That's just a standard rule. Every pastor should know that. doesn't make them bad people. I've told you folks from the very get-go, never made it a, a secret that I'm looking for a certain kind of person. And that's where we're at. John. And I didn't get this, but it's, it's so apropos that the book that we're going to study now is the one book that we need in the times that we're going through because we all need to be Johns. We all need to take that stand and put that in our heart that we do what God's called us to do. Well, just hold up there and we'll have a word of prayer. We'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We do love you. Thank you for all you do for us. Thank you for, for saving us and, Lord, going to that cross for us. Thank you for paying the price, Lord, that for, for us. And, Lord, help us to, to understand the price that we have to pay. And, Lord, I, I just ask you, Father, to help us be like John. Help us, Father, who wrote this great book, who wrote uh, the second, first John and second John and third John and the book of Revelation and saw everything that we're up against. And how terrified they all must have been that day when they took their Jesus. But he went all the way. Thank you, Father. Help me personally to go all the way. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. I'll see you Thursday night. And we'll get into it.